You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus and the security of love that we have in him, the mercy and uh, grace that is available to us all right here and right now, and the hope of glory and eternal life uh, that we have in Christ. We thank you for his life and his death and indeed his beautiful resurrection. We thank you that your presence is with us now. Oh, that we would know that you are with us. Help us to enter in. Help us to go deep with you. Help us to trust you, to see you, to embrace you. Help us to discover new things about you right now. Lord, we know it's no accident that we're here. That you know every single person here by name. And you've made us to have a deep and abiding relationship with you. Lord, would your words speak now? Would you strip away any distraction? Would you meet us with your glorious, beautiful, powerful, life-changing truth? We pray this for our good. But Lord, ultimately, we pray this that you would be magnified. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's people said with one super loud voice, Amen, amen. City on a Hill, why don't you take a seat? And would you join me in thanking the Lord for our band? Anna, thank you so much. God has gifted you in such a beautiful way, and we have enjoyed uh, your gift today. So good to come together. Uh, if you're new or visiting, my name is Guy. Joy and privilege, as always, uh, to serve as the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. I've been away for a few weeks Great to be home. Uh, after our 15th anniversary, I actually headed off. I had a week of leave uh, and I went up to Noosa. I took my uh, eldest son, Zach, with me. He just turned 13. Uh, and so I thought it was a good opportunity to get a bit of uh, uh, extended time together, which was great. Uh, he also cheered me on in my first ever triathlon, uh, completed in uh, Noosa. It was 1.5K swim, 40K ride, and then a blisteringly painful 10K run in 30-degree heat. By God's grace, I completed it, and I would have come first if I was in the 74 to 79 age bracket. So just got to keep this pace for the next 30 or so years. 
Uh, I then boarded a plane. I went to Chicago. I had four days in Chicago. Some of you know I'm completing some study there. I've been doing a semester on spiritual formation. Uh, so I was doing some study at Wheaton College. Just a really blessed time, encouraging time. Uh, and then I went from there and spent a weekend and a couple of days in Dallas, Texas, uh, connecting with a good friend of mine, Matt and Lauren Chandler. City on a Hill has had something of a good partnership with the Village Church. Uh, they've supported us in a whole host of different ways. So it was great to get some time together with them. Got to open God's Word with them. And just want to thank you guys. Uh, thank the team who've been serving in my absence. They always do an amazing job. But really want to thank you guys for those of you who've been praying for me. Uh, I really felt God's presence with me uh, every step of the way. Um, I really felt my time at Wheaton particularly uh, was formative. Uh, really felt God... Um, uh, teaching me new things and helping me go deep with him. And I really hope and pray these will be uh, some great things for us as a church uh, as we go forward in his good news. Uh, speaking of which, if you have a Bible, why don't you grab it and come with me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be doing a deep dive in just one verse today, verse 15. So you might want to mark that out. But before we do that, I wanted to lay the foundation for this series, something of a mini series that'll take us all the way through to Christmas. I want to lay the foundation for this series with one of my favorite stories in the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, Jesus is, is with his disciples uh, and he invites his disciples to get on a boat and, and, and travel on the boat across the lake to the other side of Galilee. Uh, it's a famous moment and pushing off from the shore, the disciples get in and off they go. And we're told that Jesus, uh, well, he goes to the stern of the boat and at the back of the boat, he finds a little cushion, he lays his head and he, and he goes to sleep. Uh, which teaches us two things. Number one, uh, Jesus was human. And number two, midday naps are biblical. Right? So enjoy that. Uh, not during the sermon, but enjoy that. Uh, anyway, as you know, uh, he's sleeping when this wild storm comes upon the boat. And it's crashing uh, waves and water, and it's filling the boat. And, and the disciples, who, who are, you know, they're trained fishermen, many of them, are, are freaking out. Right, that they know that on the moment of uh, the boat filling and, and being swallowed by the waters. And, and so they rush towards Jesus. And, and what do they do? They, they wake him up and say, Master, Master, we're about to drown. Uh, other translations say, Master, Master, we're, we're about to perish. Right? In other words, we're about to die, Jesus. Uh, it's about to be all over Jesus. This is how the story is going to end Jesus. And what happens? The gospel writers, the disciples there, they see Jesus wake up and he turns to the storm and he says, quiet, be still. And immediately there's calm. Immediately the waves subside. Immediately the anxiety and fear in the air is gone quiet, be still. Now, I know a host of people who would look at a moment like that and say, it's just it's not possible. How could any man look at a storm and calm it like that? And I understand that and I get that. Uh, it's what the Bible calls a miracle, right? Jesus is, is, is this one who, who makes the impossible possible. It's extraordinary, and, and, and while there's so much about that story that I'd love to unpack with you, 
Actually, it's, it's the one question in the story that I think warrants the most attention. I don't know if you picked this up, but the gospel writers tell us that the moment Jesus calms a storm and then they're still, the moment that happens, the disciples, they look at Jesus and they look at one another and they ask this question. They say, who is this man? Who is this man who can calm a storm like that? Who is this man who who just saved us from death? Who is this? And interesting, I really like this. The gospel writers choose in this moment in the, the gospel accounts to leave that question just hanging in the air. It's just suspended in the air as if they're saying, go on, I want you to ask that question. I want you to explore that question. Because life, as we know, it's full of so many questions, right? Temporary type questions. What did you wear today? What am I going to eat today? How am I going to spend my afternoon today? Then on occasion, we have bigger questions. What's really going on with my career and where I should be going? How are my relationships going? And who should I spend more time with? And what about where I should live? Should I rent? Should I buy? What? Right? We, we have these. And they're all important questions. Questions we're invited to explore. But might I suggest to you that this question, the question that the disciples throw up in the air, is the question. In fact, all other questions rise and fall on that question. Who is this man? Who is he? In the five, is it five weeks to Christmas? Four, five? It's getting close. In the five weeks leading up to Christmas, we are going to look at this beautiful, exquisite passage uh, in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to walk slowly, verse by verse, one verse each Sunday in the lead up to Christmas, to explore together who this Jesus is. Now, if you're just exploring Jesus for the first time, I hope you can see how relevant this is for you. Because maybe you've heard a few things about this Jesus and you're curious, you've seen some change in some people's lives, you've had some spiritual experiences and you're here to find out a bit more. Awesome. But I also want to say to you, if you've been in church for a long time and you've been following Jesus for a long time, I hope and pray that you, like the disciples, realize that there's more to discover about Jesus. And that as we journey through God's word, let's be praying for one another uh, that we not only discover new insights about Jesus, but Lord, may his spirit burn within us deeper faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, love and affection in Jesus. Does that sound good? So let's look at this first verse together. It's going to be verse 15. Who is Jesus? The Apostle Paul says this. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In fact, why don't we all say this verse together? Here we go. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So one of the significant observations we make from the writings of Paul and pretty much any New Testament writer is not only a belief in the existence of God, but that this God can be known, 
right? So the Bible is going to want to tell you that there is God. There's lots of reason to believe in God. But even more than that, this God has chosen to make himself known, right? We don't need to speculate about God. There's lots of opinion and conjecture and speculation. We believe in a God of revelation who not only exists, but has chosen to reveal himself. And that's significant because all through the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, we're told that God is invisible, In fact, in the uh, writings of John, uh, when he kind of looks back at the previous generations before Christ, he actually says, no one has ever seen God, right? Now, that's not to say that there weren't, um, I don't know, uh, signs and wonders or pillars of thunder and clouds of glory. But what he's saying is that no one has ever seen the face of God. No one has ever seen the face of God. Um, And this is what makes Jesus... So breathtaking, because in Jesus, you have more than a signpost to God, more than a pillar of light, more than a cloud of glory. Paul says you have the very image of the invisible God. You have the image of the invisible God. Now you say, well, what does that word mean? Well, the word image is a translation of the Greek word icon. Jesus is the icon of God. In classical Greek, uh, sometimes that term used, uh, would, would be used to describe die or a stamp. In New Testament Greek, uh, it's often uh, a precise uh, copy, representation, replica. Today, interestingly enough, in a closest kind of analogy or word might be photo or photograph. All right, so think about that. Um, one of my favorite uh, documentaries of all time uh, is uh, Finding Vivian Ma. And if you've seen the doco Finding Vivian Ma, it's actually directed by a photographer who, I think it was in 2007, goes to an auction house, buys a random box, $380, a random box of uh, film negatives. Uh, for those of you born before the 90s, you probably don't know what a film negative is. You might want to Siri it. But uh, basically, it's this kind of like, uh, what is it? It's like plastics. It captures the... Oh, this is too confusing. Captures all the, the, the light from the photo. Anyway, he gets all of this and decides to go and get it processed. Not knowing what the photos would be like or who took the photos or how good they were, he takes it, gets it developed, and what does he discover? This beautiful, beautiful art. Um, I think we've got some photos here that I've captured there. Uh, so these amazing, uh, absolutely stunning images that I've, these are some of my favorites here, uh, capturing uh, life uh, in uh, New York City. I think it's around like the 1950s. Uh, beautiful, beautiful stuff. You know, kids playing around, uh, amazing composition, amazing light. Uh, I think got a couple more there. Yeah, this one here, it's someone listening to me during a sermon. Right, <laughs> I heard that, Dave. Like, it's beautiful, right? Amazing, amazing stuff. Such is the beauty. I mean, any artist knows they see a photo like this and this is stunning. How could no one have ever known about this? So, you know, prints at large prints, major exhibitions throughout New York. You've got A-list celebrities, crowds coming from everywhere to see this, this beautiful art. Now, as you may expect, um, the more that John's, the name of the director, the more he began to develop these photos the more he began to wonder, who is the artist? (laughs) Who is the artist behind these photos? And it was this quest that leads him to discover a woman of mystery named Vivian Ma. Uh, Vivian Ma was a French woman who worked as a nanny in New York, and uh, it 
was, you know, discovered that she used to walk these kids around the streets of New York with a photo around her neck, always trying to capture the moment. Um, it's believed that she took something like 100,000 photos, 100,000 images, incredible images that no one ever processed, that no one had ever seen. She was, in many ways, an invisible artist. And this is why I, I think these photographs are so stunning. Because with these images, we not only get to see the world through her eyes, but the world is now drawn to the identity of the creator. They get to see and discover the artist. And I feel this affirms something quite extraordinary about Christ, right? So in creation, we get a few clues about God and what God is like. In the prophets, we hear of God's ways and, and God's will. But as Paul points out, in Jesus, we are given one who is far greater. He is more than a sign, more than a symbol. He is the very picture, the very photograph of God. And what does that mean? It means that in Jesus, we not only see the world through the eyes of God, but the world now has eyes to see God. John 1 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't this radically shift and transform now how we are to see Jesus? How you are to relate to Jesus? Now, we need to be precise here because when Paul says Jesus is the image of God, he's not saying God the Son and God the Father are the same. Um, there's a heresy out there known as modalism. And uh, modalism says God is uh, one person with different modes, different faces, different representations. It's a bit like Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Modalism believes you'll never see God the Father and God the Son in the same room. Now, it's an interesting theory, and it's science that kind of make sense in our head, but it just doesn't stack up biblically. When the Bible talks of God the Son and God the Father, it is always affirming, listen, to two, it's always affirming two distinct persons. The image of God, Jesus, is distinct from the invisible God, God the Father. But... While the Bible affirms distinction in the triune Godhead when it comes to God's essence and nature, when it comes to God's power and will, when it comes to his relationship and glory, God the Father and God the Son are one. In fact, the oneness in the Godhead is so real, so genuine, so eternal that Jesus himself can say, if you know me, you'll know the Father. Right? So they are one. Now, why is this important? Why is Paul eager to lift up Jesus as the image of the invisible God? Well, in part, Paul is trying to refute the idea that a member of the Trinity wouldn't or couldn't take on flesh. He's trying to refute that idea. Now, to give some context, a little bit of background, Paul is writing to a church uh, that is being influenced by a movement known as Gnosticism. And we read this all through the New Testament, and there's hints of it all through, uh, of a movement of false teaching known as Gnosticism, which means to know, 
And essentially, Gnostics uh, claim to have this secret knowledge, this special understanding. They were, if you like, the know-it-alls. They knew everything. At least they claimed that. And, and, and they used to spit out a whole host of distorted theology that became very unhelpful for the church. For example, one of their key tenets was the, uh, a dualistic view of the world, which uh, not just separated body from spirit, but elevated the spirit over and against the body. So they believe that the spirit and anything spiritual is good, and the physical and the human body is bad. Right? And we actually see this, don't we, in a lot of kind of Eastern religion and even modern spirituality, where the goal of life is what? To transcend the physical life. Even we do this today when we talk about identity, don't we? You know, we often want to reduce identity when we talk about who I am to, to how I feel inside. Right? That's the real me, what I think and what I feel. Interestingly enough, it's this kind of like modern day Gnosticism that makes questions around gender and transgenderism so complex because underneath the cultural and political war is this uh, ideology that says the inner you is the real you over and against the body. So now, not only that impact how they saw one another and creation itself, but indeed how they saw Jesus himself. Gnostics were teaching that, yes, Jesus walked around, but he only appeared to be human. He wasn't actually human. It was all an illusion. He was making out that he was human when, in fact, he was not. He was, he was spirit. Um, now, Paul is clearly going to want to refute this idea. He, throughout the New Testament, is wanting us to help us see that God, uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? Completely and perfectly divine, completely and perfectly human. As John says, he is the Word made flesh. Now, I appreciate that this can be quite scandalous, uh, it's quite hard for us to imagine God becoming one of us. In fact, there was a song, I think again in the 90s, that, uh, a few 90s quotes today. Uh, the, the, do you remember this song, One of Us, Joan Osborne? There we go. Dave, come up and sing it. Alice is going to dance. Let's do it. What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Do you guys remember that? Oh, yeah. yeah, right? Do you know that when that came out, all these religious people got on the phone and said, how dare you play a song like this? It's blasphemous to suggest that God would be like that. Which is interesting. <laughs> because it actually gets very, like it's not precise completely, but it gets very close to what the Bible is telling us over and over again. The invisible God became visible. In Jesus, the God who holds the stars walked the streets. Wow. In Jesus, the cosmic one, the creator, he became close. In Jesus, the invisible God became visible. He became tangible, born of spirit, he took on flesh. So what's the relevance here? What does this mean for us today? Well, at the very least, it helps us see that God knows us. He knows you 
in a very personal and honest way. Jesus isn't some spiritual guru floating on a spiritual cloud eating spiritual grapes. No, Jesus walked in our shoes, uh, journeyed through our experience. He knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to get tired. He knows what it's like to be anxious. He knows what it's like to um, have great friends. And he knows what it's like to be betrayed by those friends. He knows what it's like to have crowds of people surrounding him and cheering him. And he knows what it's like to feel desperately alone. Jesus knows you in a way that no one else knows. And that's got to change how you relate to him. Think about your prayer life. When you know that you can pray to someone who knows you and knows what's your, what you're going through. I mean, this just could be me, but I found in my life that when, when I'm going through a difficult situation, whatever that might be, I want to talk to someone who's experienced it. Isn't that true? You don't want to, you, like, you don't want to talk to someone who you can just hold up the book manual. You actually want someone who's been through it. Right? In fact, most of the great counselors you've ever spoken to have had their own experience of pain and suffering because through their pain and suffering, they, well, what happens? They have a compassion for others and deep insight through their lived experience. So what, that, what does that then mean for us in our relationship with Jesus? It means you don't need to hold on to your burdens. You can come to me and say, Jesus, I'm going through this terror. I'm feeling alone. I'm feeling anxious. Would you be my comforter? Would you be my counselor? It's not to say you can't talk to other people. It's just saying you have Jesus by your side. But of course, the point in Colossians, which Paul is eager for us to take hold of today, is, is not only that, that God knows us, but that in Christ, you can now know God. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It's a famous one. He said, if there was a God, you wouldn't relate to him the way a person on the first floor relates to a person on the second floor. You would relate to him in the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Shakespeare created Hamlet. The only way Hamlet can know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes something about himself into the play. So what's the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel is that God has written himself into the story of our lives. He, by his own goodness and grace, has chosen to make himself known. He has chosen to reveal himself to you. It's incredible. And so because Jesus is God and God has chosen to make himself known, we are now to look at Jesus with open eyes, eager to discover the truth about God. Right? You know you're in a spiritual battle, so there's going to be all kinds of different views and opinions and conjecture about who God is. Paul's saying, put all of that to the side. Open the word, pray that the spirit comes down and that when you read the Bible, you might see Jesus for who Jesus truly is. This is why I would love it if you and we as a church would camp in the gospels. Not just drive through the gospels, not just drive through the Bible, but actually pitch a tent, set up a campfire, 
light a few marshmallows and enter in. I think that's how you should read the Bible, knowing that you're entering into the story of God with a desire to see him. Like when I'm sitting at the table with Jesus and he's breaking bread with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and there's all this murmuring and he doesn't care. He's welcoming and celebrating him. And I'm seeing Jesus interact in that moment. What am I learning about God? I'm learning that God is kind and compassionate. He's eager to welcome you. When you are in John's gospel and you're there reading and not just reading, but you're there with the woman caught in adultery and you're standing there and you see this moment of tension as the Pharisees are all lined up with their stones, ready to condemn, ready to judge. And then you see Jesus stand in the gap. Think, man, God is not afraid of man. God is not afraid to put himself on the line. God is committed to justice. God is committed to freedom. God is committed to forgiveness. Now, is there a call that Jesus gives her to leave your sin and go and live a new and better life? Absolutely. Because I know God wants me to live that way and he wants you to live that way. He wants me to be free of sin because that would be terrible. He wants me to know him, right? But in the heart of this story, I see that Even when my sin is exposed, even when I'm utterly naked before others, humiliated before the world, Jesus is right there by my side saying, I love you and I don't condemn you. That's your God. And then you walk with Jesus to the house of his good mate, Lazarus. There's Martha and Mary and they're weeping. And then you look at Jesus and you see that as he approaches the house, he himself is weeping his best mate, his good mate, he's sick, dead, and he's weeping, which reminds me that God is not this distant cosmic figure who doesn't care, but is actually close and concerned, and that even in your brokenness and in your trial, he, he weeps. And then you go with Jesus into that tomb, and you see the power of Jesus. Lazarus, come out. And there, like that, this dead man, walks and his clothes of burial are exchanged for clothes of life and you see in that moment that our God is committed to life and he has the power and then you walk with Jesus on his road to Calvary and you hear the the crowds who once adored him and now mocking him. Now you can almost feel the spray of spit. And Jesus doesn't back down. He keeps moving forward. And then you see Jesus go forward all the way to that cross and you see him go there and die that brutal, bloody death. And you discover that this Jesus who is crucified is crucified for our sin. He's not dying for his sin. He's perfect and righteous in every way. But he dies our death. He buried in the ground. He takes it on. And what does this tell you? It tells you so much. God's power, God's life, God's love. This is the God you worship. This is the God we discover in Jesus. 
N.T. Wright says this so well. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama, which has him as the central character. What would it mean for you to take hold of this truth today? What would it mean for you to truly enter in? Look then to what Paul says next. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, Now, many have actually misinterpreted uh, this phrase here. Um to mean that uh, Christ is part of creation. So if a JW comes knocking at your door, they're going to point to this verse and say that Jesus is part of creation. Uh, But that is not what Paul means. Uh, In fact, that's not what Jesus himself declared. Uh, The Pharisees conspired against Jesus. Why? Because of his claim to be God. He wasn't crucified because he was a good teacher. He was crucified because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what then does Paul mean when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? Well, the term firstborn is a term of preeminence and dignity. Uh, It's a statement about his status. For example, in Psalm 89, God says of King David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Likewise, in Exodus 4, Israel is called my beloved firstborn son. So the point in Colossians is not that Jesus was the first thing created. The point is Jesus is preeminent and supreme over all creation. To paraphrase Piper, Jesus is first and foremost over all planets in the galaxy and stars that light up the night sky. Jesus is first and foremost over earth and everything that moves across the earth. Every mountain, every rolling hill is subservient to him. Jesus is uh, first and foremost over every nation, every political figure, every king, every queen. Jesus is first and foremost over the church, every church minister, every church leader, every church member belongs to Jesus. Jesus is first and foremost over every family, over every household, over every husband and wife, every brother and sister, every man, woman and child. As Abraham, Abraham Kuyper once said, there is no, not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, if that is true, and Jesus truly is first in and over all creation, then we need to ask ourselves if Jesus is truly first in our lives as well. Great quote by John Piper. He says this, All the planets of your life 
your sexuality and desires, your commitments and beliefs, your aspirations and dreams, your attitudes and convictions, your habits and disciplines, your solitude and relationships, your labor and leisure, your thinking and feeling, all the planets of your life are held in orbit by the greatness and gravity and blazing brightness of the supremacy of Jesus Christ at the center of your life. If he ceases to be the bright, blazing, satisfying beauty at the center of your life, the planets will fly into confusion and a hundred things will be out of control and sooner or later they will crash into destruction. We were made to know Christ as he really is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But is he first to you? Is he first in your relationships? The one you go to first for your comfort and your counsel? Is he first in your career? When it comes to what you're going to do with your life, where you're going to spend your time, are you going first to Jesus to seek his priorities, to seek his purpose? When it comes to finances, And your possessions is Jesus first. Are you building your life around him? Is Jesus first when it comes to your time and your talents? When you look at all that God has given you, do you lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to put you first. And when it comes to your love, And the many loves that we have, are you seeking and praying that God would give you the grace to love him first? Does he have your highest priority, your greatest affection? I remember talking uh, with a young woman from our church. Uh, Her parents divorced when she was two, uh, and she suffered, sadly, tragically, years of abuse at home. And this led to self-harm and and, and a loss of uh, complete hope. At 14, uh, she battles anorexia, losing 30 kilograms in six weeks and spends five years in and out of children's hospital. Uh, In a desperate attempt to find freedom, she enters the world of alcohol and drugs. At this stage, she's just 16 years old. Soon after, she's kicked out of home, finds herself uh, in a season of deep anger and blame. She becomes addicted to ice Uh, She's in and out of hospitals and homelessness and rehab. Uh, She's scared of who she's become. Uh, She shares that she tries to take her life on many occasions, and yet she was still alive, still battling, still trying to make her way through. And it was about this time in her life that she began to consider that maybe There was a God after all, and that maybe this God knows her, and maybe this God is holding her. Some years later, she meets a personal trainer at her local gym. Uh, And over time, this uh, gym instructor gets up the courage to say that he's a Christian and begins to share his faith with her. At first, she's annoyed because she thinks that all Christians are morons, but she could see that he cared for her. And that his faith was genuine. And it gave her an understanding of who Jesus truly is. Uh, 
And she explains that one day she's sitting in her car and she cries out to God to make himself known. And in that moment, she says she was filled with the warmth of the Spirit that went from the seat of her car to the very center of her heart. She immerses herself then in God's Word, reading the Bible and exploring all that God has revealed about himself in Jesus. Now, at the time, she's living with a boyfriend uh, who didn't like the changes he was seeing in her life. He didn't like the shifting of the planets. And so he told her that he had to make, she had to make a choice. It had to be God or him. She says the choice was easy. She chose God. <laughs> she put Jesus first. Soon after, she starts coming to church, commits her life completely in, uh, to Christ and is baptized. Uh, was it easy to put Jesus first? No. But I hope you know that Jesus is always worth it. He not only deserves the highest place in our life, but is made for the highest place in your life. So as the band comes up, I want us to reflect on what we've heard. Um, it could be that you are here today or joining us online and you are just exploring Christianity. Maybe you have experienced some spiritual things. Maybe you, maybe you realize that life is feeling a little disordered. And it's no accident that you're here and it's no accident that you're hearing about Jesus. And I, I don't want you to push that to the side. I want you to know that God has revealed himself to us in Jesus and that Jesus came to this world that we would know life and know that life in full. And he is inviting you to put Jesus first, right? There can be no other way. You can't have Jesus to the side of your life. He must be at the center. And so to be a Christian is to walk in faith and say, Jesus, I'll put you first. Jesus, I will trust you. Jesus, I will follow you. If that's you, uh, I encourage you to share that with someone. Maybe it's someone who's brought you here today. It could be myself or someone on our prayer team. We would love to help you. We'd love to help you follow Jesus. doesn't mean you have to have everything all worked out. No one here has everything worked out. But there's an invitation here to become a Christian. And to see him as the blazing sun at the center of your life. It's also possible that you're here today, like many of us, and you've been following Jesus for a long time and you've been coming to church. But as you reflect on this, you, the Spirit is challenging you and inviting you to recognize that at this stage, in this moment, Jesus is not central and it needs to be changed. And there needs to be a resolve right now to put Jesus first. To not just play games in your Christianity. To not just go through the motions. But actually in this moment to resolve, not in your own strength, but in God's strength, to put Jesus first. He's the firstborn of all creation. But is He first to you? Maybe there's a question you're facing right now about a relationship, a decision about a relationship, and it's been spinning in your head. Have you put Jesus first? Is He first to you? Is He at the center? Is He guiding your way? 
Maybe there's a pattern of sin in your life. You love coming to church, part of a gospel community and happy to say you're a Christian, but you know there's a habit of sin in your life and it's still there. And today, God wants you to repent of that sin and put Jesus first. To trust that Jesus is better than that sin. To trust that Jesus has power over that sin. And to live according to His Spirit and to put Him first. Maybe there are some of us here today and you've just been living under lies. One of the things we know about the evil one is that he's an accuser and he loves to condemn and he loves to judge. And a lot of people in life walk with self-rejection, listening to themselves about they're not good enough, they're not part of this, they shouldn't be... What if today you resolve to stop listening to those lies and start listening to Jesus first? To trust the word that when Jesus says, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, you will cling to that. Maybe there are some here today and you feel at sea in a season of worry. Something is keeping you up at night. And you keep circling over it. And it's become so big to you. It's consuming everything. What if today you resolved in your heart to take Jesus and lift him up to his rightful place? It's not to say that the concern in your life will magically go away. But what if you were to find your anchor today in Jesus, to trust in Jesus? And then finally, maybe there are some people here today who, you know, it's the lead up to Christmas and there's so much going on and you've just found yourself running so hard. One project to the next project, one box to the next box. Life is just a treadmill of doing and doing and doing. You just become a human doing, not a human being. And being busy is not a sin, it's just dangerous dangerous because it can take us away for the centrality and supremacy of Christ. What if today, by the power of God, you resolve to put Jesus first? That before you did anything else in the morning, you went first to Jesus. Five minutes, maybe 10. Wherever you need to start, start somewhere, but go first to Jesus. Build a rhythm in your life where you can go deep with Jesus and know that He's with you. I want to give you a moment to reflect, for us all to invite God's Spirit to move. And it could be an opportunity for us to confess in our heart the areas of our life where we've removed Jesus from His rightful space. And it's a moment to pray, Lord, Lord, would Jesus be central? Commit yourself afresh to him. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.